All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Lore Lodge. Um, we have we have a great guest today. Uh, I am psyched to have you back. Uh, this is Inspiring Philosophy, and he is going to talk to us today about uh, one of one of the concepts that I think is it's one of my favorite. You know, surface level. Okay, I get it. And then there's getting it. And then in between, there's just a massive gap of being confused. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's yeah. also a large portion of people that are uh, think that they're at the other spectrum of get mm -hmm. it. They, they've come over the hill. Yep. And then, like, they encounter a sentence, and they're like, oh, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those one of those topics that, I mean, it's it's we have multiple churches because of this. Um, there, there there is a there was a schism in the, the main church because of this. Like, there's obviously we're talking about the trinity and the concept that god is you know the christian god is one god in three persons but you know obviously uh mike i want to i want to have you introduce yourself really quick when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply for anybody who might not know you yes my, my name is mike uh i'm a sensitive boy i enjoy long walks on the beach picking flowers and stuff that's about it that's all, all right, you no. need to know not the bible or anything <laughs> no <laughs> no I, so i run inspiring philosophy uh, i do a lot of christian apologetics uh arguing uh, for a biblical worldview from a hopefully a more philosophical or scholarly perspective and doing trinity stuff has always been a passion of mine i need to get back into it uh I want to do another series on the New Testament and the Trinity, but yeah, that's a lot of stuff to get to before I do that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's, I don't think it's quite up there with Revelation in terms of complexity, but it's one of those topics within theology that every single time I get curious about it, I learn something new. Um, and, you well, know, what? I think I can give you a really good way to understand the Trinity today, a way sure. you you will so I go, oh, okay, I can kind of see that. So then I, I think look we forward can do that. to it. So, I mean, maybe the best way to start then is, is with, you know, my current concept of the Trinity and, and what, what it was taught growing up to me, which is that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, growing up, I'm sure you probably, all three of us probably heard much the same thing of, well, you know, there's God and there's God, the father or God, the son and God, the Holy spirit. And they're all God. And they each perform different functions as God, but they're all God. Uh, the father, the son, and the Holy mm -hmm. spirit. And then, I got to college and I started taking religious studies courses and it got a, a lot more complicated than that. Uh, there's the fact that the, the Byzantine churches did not see uh, the Trinity as co-equal. There's the fact that the, the Catholics decided they did and they were going to change things. Um, there is the, the idea that Jesus, the Holy spirit and the father are all fully God and all fully their own thing. And then Jesus on top of that is fully man as well as fully God. And that, I think, is where things got confusing for me, is that it went from the basic version of it to, okay, this is incredibly cosmologically complex. And what I have struggled the most with when being asked about it is explaining how, how one being can be three beings while still being one being. Or one mm -hmm. being can be three persons while still being one being. 
Um, so, you know, I, I guess that's probably the starting point, the jumping off point is how does that happen? How does that work? What's the, what is the function of the Trinity in, in, uh, you know, a doctrinal context? Mm -hmm. Right. So look, look, Trinity basically is, I sum up in three sentences. There is one God. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. Now, the, a lot of people will say that's illogical. I would push back and say, no, it's incomprehensible to the human mind. We need to distinguish between something being illogical and just not comprehend, comprehensible. Mm -hmm. For example, Stephen Barr in his book, Modern Physics and Ancient Faith, he talks about how, you know, mathematically speaking, there's there could be entire universes that have four or five dimensions of space. Mm -hmm. I can't understand that, but it's logical. But he goes one step further. He says, you could even have a universe that's got two dimensions of time or three dimensions of time. Now, I can't comprehend four-dimensional space, mm -hmm. let alone 2D time. I don't even know what that would feel like, look like, anything. It's beyond comprehension. But according to the mathematics, it's completely logical. Right. So we need to note right off the bat, the Trinity may be entirely logical, even though we may not be able to comprehend it. We kind of can compare it a lot to what's happening in quantum mechanics. There's a lot of things that just seem completely illogical, but they make total sense and they're consistent with the uh, experimental findings. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing to note. The Trinity is just, it's beyond our comprehension, but that doesn't mean it's illogical. Sure. However, I do think there's are better ways to understand it. So people want to know how can all three be God and not the same? I think we have a very simple understanding of identity here. So let's start with a simple thing. Have you ever had a dream? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Have you ever in your dream talked to somebody in your dream? I think so. Yeah, yeah probably. You were talking to yourself. Yeah. Weren't you talking to yourself? Uh, that, see, now now you're going <laughs> to make my head hurt. Yeah, yeah, I was talking to myself well, see, in my dream. Uh. <laughs> think about it, though. You There's another – I've had dreams where I'm talking to another person, and then they do something I don't want. Like I've had dreams where like, you know, my father like jumps off a cliff or something mm -hmm. or like, you know, my dog attacks me kind of thing. Like that's me in a sense, but it's also not me. Right. So right then and there, the very concept of dreams, we can sort of get this idea of, hey, there's one mind, but multiple persons are interacting. Take the movie Inception. The movie Inception is really fascinating because Cobb, the main character, Leonardo mm -hmm. DiCaprio, is constantly dealing with his wife who mm -hmm. is dead in the real world. Right. But in, when he goes into his dream space, a uh, apparition or like a version of his wife is still there running around his mind that he can't mm -hmm. control. So you have Cobb and Mae. I think it's Maeve is what her name is. I think so. And there's two persons there of one mind though, is there not? So the question is, is Cobb is clearly distinct from Maeve Maybe mm -hmm. clearly distinct from Cobb, but they both have access to the full mental space. Right. So there we have we looking at dreams, looking at uh, an example in sci-fi. You can sort of get the idea of how no, actually, you could have a mind that is multiple persons. It's not too hard to comprehend, right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's and that's that's you know we we were talking about it earlier, and I think. I think the mind is is definitely the central concept of it because what we were trying to figure out was what's a good analogy for this is is looking at it as well the, a human being is mind body and soul is that something that you can apply to the trinity is that too compartmentalized uh, and then of course you get into I don't like Aquinas that. and Avicenna yeah, and all of their discussions um, and, and that didn't seem right to me 
either. That didn't seem like it it quite encapsulated it. It wasn't it wasn't quite the right relationship. And I think I think what bugs me about it is I don't like to leave anything at incomprehensible. I like to try and find a way that it works. And this is this may just be one of those things that that doesn't work for. But I uh, you know there there were a few. I think that was a good description of of the whole the whole concept. I wanted to. Uh, to ask your thoughts on a few different things about it, uh, if you don't mind, as we as we get into things, I mm-hmm. uh, the the first one that I would like to you know poke your brain about is the the filioque, and the <laughs> the basically you know one of the one of those big divisions that led to the schism, where I if I think I'm remembering this properly, it's been a few years, but that the way it was within the Byzantine Church, the, the Eastern Church was. The, there is the Father, and then the Son proceeds from the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, right? Mm-hmm. And then the Catholic Church went and said, actually, all three proceed from one another. Well, not no, no, that, that, really. Sorry, the, the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. Right, yes, that's it. The, the Latin Church was like, they added the phrase, and from the Son, that's mm-hmm. filioque, so, and from the Son, so... The, the Eastern side pushed back and says, no, the father is the one who is the ultimate originator of all mm-hmm. things. Uh, you know, you know, they want to try to make this, keep the sort of monarchy of the father. The father is the one who is true God in the numerical sense. The son cannot be like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he cannot be spirating the spirit. And so that's where that the split sort of comes over. Right. So the filioque is like, in a nutshell, the Eastern side said, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Mm-hmm. The West said, no, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And this mm-hmm. was more of a debate over how to properly interpret Scripture, specifically mm-hmm. the farewell discourse in John, for example. Uh, is Jesus sort of like just sending the Father or sending the Spirit, or, or is he actually spirating the Spirit? Mm-hmm. And so this is where the whole debate sort of comes in. Mm-hmm. So, can can you explain? I guess what what some of those terms like what what would the difference between spirate and proceed be? Well, I mean, it's it's sort of just sort of capturing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, sort of like you know, where is the the spirit's origin? Is it just yeah. in the father, or in the father and the son? Mm-hmm. So, the way you sort of understand it in the West is that uh, the father gener- uh, sort of begots the son, mm-hmm. and the love of the son and the father. Uh, together have out the spirit comes out of that so you know so this is this is tapping into a much more complicated thing which is the difference between latin and social models of the trinity uh so maybe we should cover that let's let's hop into that 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 relates to it yeah so social models of the trinity are basically what we tend to think of the trinity uh there is one mind and three centers of consciousness Mm -hmm. now some uh, philosophers like brian lefto push back on this building on work of like thomas aquinas saint athanasius the great as well and they put forward more latin models mm-hmm. so social models emphasize the three distinct uh centers of consciousness i guess would be the way to put it of the trinity mm-hmm. latin models focus more on the oneness of god mm-hmm. so they don't want to really focus too much on saying there are three like distinct wills in the trinity there's only one there's only one god Mm-hmm. So Latin models focus more on the oneness of God. Social models fo- focus on aspect of the three persons more. Mm-hmm. Three persons of one God. A Latin model would be sort of like, well, okay, there is just one God. There is just this one center of consciousness in God. But God knows himself. How how can he know himself? And mm-hmm. Well, because he's God, he's a, 
I'm trying to simplify this as best I can. He's a greater essence than we are. Uh, that is the son. The, 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 the son is like the perfect image of the father. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then those, because God loves himself too, the spirit sort of spirates out of that. Mm-hmm. So Brian Lefto uses an analogy of how the Latin model would work. Imagine, you're, imagine a time-traveling dancer mm-hmm. who goes back to the same stage three times, and all three of them are up there. Uh, there's three dancers up there, but you, mm-hmm. there's still only one. They're just different life streams, let's use his terminology, mm-hmm. of the one dancer. Uh, they're just being generated on different timelines kind of thing. And so this is more of a Latin model. It's going to focus on there being one center of consciousness who's God, and that's different life streams coming out. Meanwhile, a social model is going to say there are three distinct centers of consciousness in the one mind of God. Okay. Processing that vaguely, vaguely <laughs> yeah. sounds like the metaphor I was thinking of earlier, which was yeah. Weed one. Social models. You mean weed as in dandelion, correct? Correct, or just like you know, weeds <laughs> in the garden. The, the the metaphor I was coming up with that the I thought, Lord is not a joint. No, no, no. no. The, the the Lord is not uh, majawana. Uh, no, but the the yeah. metaphor that I was coming up with earlier when we were discussing this prior to the show was, and I wanted to get your opinion on it because the. The instinct that comes to mind would be that, you know, what we see or per- perceive or have known to be, you know, the three versions of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would be kind of what you were describing there about a dancer, kind of like our capability of witnessing such a thing from the human perspective. And my mindset on that was kind of like a weed that grows underground but has sprouts that shoot up through the earth. And the earth is kind of the barrier of human perception. And so we see three different mm-hmm. weeds, supposedly, but it's really all the same plant. Yeah. So here's one thing I say about that kind of analogies. I tell people to stop using physical analogies because the moment a critic of the Trinity will hear that, they're going to be find a way to break that down. Mm -hmm. Like the analogy, they're going to be like, that's partialism. And they're right. Mm -hmm. God is not a physical thing. A physical thing can't be three and one. Right. But a mental thing can. And like I mentioned before, with like the dream analogy, you can have a mind that's multiple persons. In an instance, uh, God could be greater than that and that he could be three eternal persons. And if you with the long hair there, you look like you enjoy comic books. I don't know why. You're absolutely, it might you. be the the vaguely Superman color scheme, but yeah, you're accurate. <laughs> yeah. So when I was in grad school, uh, I was studying, uh, I was taking a class on agency and the philosophy surrounding agency. And at the same time, a show came on called Moon Knight on, on the mm-hmm. Disney, Disney streaming theater. And I was like, I was watching the show with my wife and I was like, you know, this is exactly what I've been trying to get at in terms of trying to explain the Trinity. Because in Mm -hmm. in the show and in the comics, Moon Knight is Moon Knight, Mm -hmm. but he is supposed to be someone who's got multiple personality disorder. But that's not really what he has. If you have that disorder, you switch between different alters. So like Mm -hmm. one day you're Joe, the next day you're Sam. You're never Joe and Sam simultaneously. But in the show, he is Mark, Stephen, and Jake. Mm -hmm. They... It, they they coexist. They can talk with one another. They mm-hmm. both can fully. They can all fully be Moon Knight. Mark generates Stephen and Jake. Like they, they he made them. Uh, but they're all fully. But they're all fully Moon Knight. So mm-hmm. each one is distinct from the other. Mark is not Stephen. Stephen is not Jake. Jake is not Mark. But they're all fully Moon Knight. Uh, and they all can have the access to the powers of who Moon Knight is. So it's really just one brain, one person, mm-hmm. or not one person, but it's one brain, one body. And there are three persons in there. Mm-hmm. So the idea that the Trinity is illogical or even to some degree incomprehensible is not entirely true because we have an entire show built around a being being three persons. 
and it makes total sense in the show. Everyone gets it. They are three persons. Mm-hmm. They're all fully Moon Knight, but they're not each other. So when we compare the Trinity to physical things, people get, well, that's partialism, or that's mm-hmm. modalism, or you know, that's Arianism. But when we compare it to like an actual mental agent, we go, oh, yeah, that makes total sense. We could totally see a being that is three persons. It, it's mm-hmm. just that's the way it is in the show. So it's almost conceptually as as if God, the, the original creator being of the universe, segments himself into two separate consciousness. He's got three, but the, 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 the main God is at some point in the scheme of creation taken the Son and the Holy Spirit and created consciousness for both of them within himself. Is what, is that... well, we want to be careful. We, we don't want to say that God did this at a point. They're, they're mm-hmm. eternally the Father. And the okay. Son. So this is Alexander of Alexandria's uh, argument uh, against Arian. He's like, when, when did the Father become a Father? Well, he's eternally mm-hmm. the Father. Therefore, the Son is also eternal as well. So it's not like God ever did this. This is just the way God eternally is. But and I, so I don't I don't think that's what you're doing. You're just trying to understand the language. And yeah, that's a good way to sort of sort of grasp it. It's like, mm-hmm. yes, there is a center of consciousness, and then there's another center of consciousness in the one mind that's kind of like Moon Knight. Like if you take in the show Moon Knight, Mark is the originator and he generates Steven and Jake. If you were to take Moon Knight out and put him in a timeless environment, uh they would just Mark would still generate Steven and Jake. Mm-hmm. But it would be an eternal generation. It would mm-hmm. not be one where he, it happened at a point in time. Mm-hmm. Two things on that regard. So given the the eternal element of that is then by scripture, or at least to the best understanding that we have right now, indicating that kind of the consciousness of Christ existed prior to his physical manifestation on, manifestation mm-hmm. on earth. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that's actually, yeah. that's and what I want to address is, after this. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, that's in Jude. That Jude says that in Jude one five. Like the the the, the um, the, it is a textual variant. I will say that, but the scholarly consensus is that it does say Jesus, and it says mm. Jesus is who led the children of Israel out of Egypt. So the brother of Jesus, Jude, was saying, "Oh yeah, Jesus was preexisted. He was actually Yahweh and mm-hmm. leading Israel out of Egypt." Yeah. That, so that's actually where I wanted to go next. Was the I mean, there's Old Testament and New Testament Trinitarianism, which of course the mm-hmm. the the, the modern Jewish community would likely reject the idea of Old Testament Trinitarianism, but in the Christian community, it's been around for a very long time. Uh, and what I wanted to kind of address were a few specific points. One of those was Moses in the burning bush, because it says the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, it says the Lord said to Moses. And I, I guess the, where I'd want to start with that, because it's one of the earliest examples, is in that instance which person of God was Moses talking to in the bush? Well, we would say that it is, um, it would be the son at that point. So Mm -hmm. in the old Testament, what uh, Trinitarians point to is we say, you have Yahweh who's in heaven. And then you have the angel of Yahweh Mm -hmm. and angel just means messenger. So it doesn't mean like an actual, like what we think wings with a harp and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, you have the angel of Yahweh and then you have the spirit of Yahweh as well doing things. So like mm-hmm. the spirit of Yahweh comes on someone, they prophesy. So that would be the Holy spirit. Mm-hmm. So yeah. In, in Exodus three, you would have the kind of uh, concept of this is God himself, who is like a pre-incarnation Christ. So anytime you see like angel of Yahweh appears, like appeared to Hagar, for example, in mm-hmm. Genesis as well, that's Yahweh. That's that'd be the son before he becomes Jesus Christ in the flesh. So would it, 
would it then be appropriate to look at it as the the father is i mean i guess this I, i'm this is not original to me but the father would be the will the spirit would be the inspiration and the son would be the manifestation i mean that would say that's an economic understanding of it all i don't want to i want to be very clear that i i would be okay saying that in an economic understanding okay. i don't want to say that's ontologically what they are got it so in in a way to describe it to somebody to give them the effect of what happens yeah yeah and so that's something the uh keep in mind but i mean again and you mentioned the idea that jewish scholars would reject this that's not entirely true some jewish scholars look at the old testament and they scratch their heads and they go actually this sounds very trinitarian mm-hmm. uh, there's a great book called two powers in heaven yeah kaiser uh, mentioned they, that in a video i watched yeah but there's another great book called the bodies of god by benjamin sommer and he says he's got no theological objections to the trinity because he reads the hebrew bible and god is multi-personal throughout mm-hmm. he's god is in heaven, but he's still sending himself out to do things. How does that work? Well, this is it's very much in line with Trinitarianism. And now he doesn't affirm the Trinity, mm-hmm. but he says, I, you know, I can't be theologic. I can't theologically object to the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Benjamin Sommer says this because when I look at my own Hebrew Bible, I'm finding aspects that would align perfectly with Trinitarian theology. So the Trinity was not some sort of like Platonic thing that was incorporated into Christianity. This mm-hmm. is something. This is a Jewish idea that came out of the jewish traditions and it's just more fully uh in like f- realized in the mm-hmm. christian tradition when we get the new testament all right i this is why i wanted to have you on this is causing <laughs> me to think this is, this is giving me thoughts well, good yeah that's what this is precisely what i wanted um so i guess the other one that, that was directly tied to that then that i wanted to bring up was uh the, the episode of um it's uh, jacob Jacob wrestling. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yes, I'm correct in that. Yeah, the episode where Jacob wrestles uh, with with Elohim. Because mm-hmm. that's one of those ones that I've looked at it and I've read it a few times. I have it in my interlinear and I've gone through and been like, all right, is this, who is Jacob wrestling with right now? Is this God? Is this either the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit? Or is this just a, a, an angel of the Lord? Because depending on which person you ask, Elohim can also apply to angels. Yeah, I will actually have a video kind of related to this topic coming out in April. Perfect. It's not going to be on the whole issue. This is because in Genesis, there are two places where Jacob has his name changed. Mm-hmm. And it's in it's in the wrestling episode, but also when Jacob arrives in Bethel in Genesis 35. And so source critics will say, aha, you see, this is evidence of two different sources stitched together. And I'm going to make the case, no, it isn't. This is actually, it. this is, shows unity between the sources. So, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, I would argue that is God. Uh, I think that's what the text basically implies because it, we see in scripture that it is God who changed uh, Israel's name from Jacob. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is no indication this is something other than God himself. Okay. Uh, the angel speaks with authority. Uh, he does things that only God should be able to do. Uh, this is very clearly, I believe, God acting. Um, and sort of, and, you know, you know, Martin Luther has got some really interesting commentary on this about how this is a good way to understand that God is not this distant platonic type thing that is not interested in us like this is this is god showing up to say hey this is the kind of relationship i want with you i want you to fight with me i want Mm -hmm. you to be you know coming to me for things uh want you to basically wrestle with me Mm -hmm. uh i don't want this to just be like the struggle with god yeah and so there's actually some really beauty a lot of beauty in that i think Mm -hmm. in what god is trying to do 
uh, showing us who he really is and how emotion is something that's not something that he's distant. It's like this platonic, you know, other thing out there. He very much does uh, celebrate emotions and, and engage in them. This is sorry. I'm like I'm it, comprehending. <laughs> can, oh, yeah. we, can we add one more it's, thing to yeah. comprehend in there? There was one metaphor that I've essentially been required to ask about, which was, and it was in uh, a little bit of your video uh, earlier today that I was watching. It's the uh, and the, the Trinity in the New Testament one, right? No, no, it's actually different. Was, no, I mean, like which video yeah. was it? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, you know, it's the one you came out with a few days ago. Oh, the church fathers. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, sorry for not being clear no, on that. Yeah, it is, and the chat's gonna love this one, but it's the the metaphor of the milk that uh, stuck <laughs> out to uh, my girlfriend in particular. She really wanted to hear about like the actual like reasoning behind that. Uh, but I also know that our chat is absolutely gonna go nuts. For, yeah, with metaphor that. of the milk is not gonna be good for our chat. No, uh, no. but go yeah. on. <laughs> you know, early early Christian thinkers were trying to wrestle with this idea as well too. So um, they they were coming up with things, and they're trying to say, well, you know. I believe it's in the Odes of Solomon, if I'm not mistaken, that I, I, yes. I said that the milk metaphor shows up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's early Christians were also trying to figure out how do they explain how the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but there's only one God. So they're coming up with metaphors as well. They try to figure this out. Mm -hmm. uh, we see similar type of use of languages in like the Cappadocian Fathers later. Uh, but yeah, that was just someone trying to say, well, you can sort of think of it like this. This is what we do when we compare God to a light source or we compare god to you know like i don't know an egg like we're just trying to get people to think about it and the problem with a lot of those analogies is it just it reduces what the trinity really is because mm -hmm. anything we compare god physically to it, it's going to break down it's probably going to be something like partialism where right. it's just three different parts of god or modalism where it's just god going through different modes and so you know, I don't agree with the milk metaphor. I, I noted it in that video because I'm just showing, hey, even these guys believed in the Trinity. That's why they're coming up with analogies to try to explain this. But again, I think we need to compare it to mental things because when we start to enter philosophy of mind, the Trinity starts to make far more sense. Can we go through what the milk metaphor is? Because I did not see this me, part. Me, well, I didn't really go into it because I didn't really agree with it too much. <laughs> like, that's the one thing you got to think of. I was like, well, I mean... You can do that in the second century, but I'm not going to be like super happy about that now. But I can, um, I can pull it up here really quickly, and we can go, we can look at it, uh, because yeah, it's it's an interesting analogy. Uh, what the the author was trying to do. Uh, let me see, where did I find that here? Um, yeah, it was an interesting. I can't remember the metaphor exactly, but it was an interesting like lineation of essentially the yeah. the you know the Father, Son, and the Holy yeah. Spirit. Yeah. Basically, here's what he says. He says, a cup of milk was offered to me and I drank it in the sweetness of the delight of the Lord. The son is the cup and he who was milked is the father and the Holy Spirit milked him because his breaths, breasts were full and it was necessary for him that his milk should be sufficiently released. Now, that's a little weird, a little cringe. I hate uh, everything yeah. about that. From start to finish, that needs to be discussed on Weird Bible. The thing that sticks out to me, though, is that it's the Holy Spirit who's doing the milking. Because in in all yeah. of the in all of the discussion that we've had so far, that's like a lot more agency to the Holy Spirit in comparison to the Father than anything else we've covered. And like, 
you know, it's hilarious that this is the metaphor, but genuinely that intrigues me, considering everything else we have attributed to the members of the Trinity thus far. Well, I mean, you, you got to think this is this is just early Christians really trying to wrestle with what yeah. the scriptures taught. It's, and they're it's... like, we got to come up with some way to explain this. And this was like an early attempt at that. It's not a very good one, but no, you got to give them A for an effort, at least. Yeah, <laughs> a horrifying. Yeah, it's it's a theological nightmare <laughs> when, you, when you think about it, but uh, it's it is what it is. Jacob's wrestling with God. I can't even wrestle with that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad we could touch on the, the old Testament roots of it and and how it was looked at. I'm curious when you, uh, when you read Genesis, do you read the, the line, let us make man in our image as uh, the father, the son, and the Holy spirit, or do you read that as the, the divinities that includes the, the divine council? So I would tend to side with Heiser on that. That's just talking about divine counsel mm-hmm. because it there, there's a distinction in there. People don't notice the distinction. It says, let us make man in our own image. Then it says God singular made man mm-hmm. in his image. So it goes from plural to singular. Mm-hmm. And so this this seems because of that, I think we can say this is just God talking to the divine counsel. But then he does all the creating. Uh, so I think that's just a simpler way to understand it. I, I would not be opposed to it being Trinitarian, but I just don't see it necessary in the text. For those who may be less informed about just theology as a whole, myself included. That's, that's I was, why you're here. Yeah, I was, I was a bad uh, Catholic school uh, schoolboy. Uh, what is the divine council? Ah, not something you would have learned oh. about in Catholic school. Yeah. <laughs> it's something the Catholic school is going to really try their best to avoid. Okay, I feel less bad now. No, don't yeah. feel bad about that at all. That's something I didn't even learn about in college. Uh, really? You well, you're, you're more educated it, than I am. It's not It's not something to be scared of. Some no. Christians are scared of this idea, and it's in the Bible. I mean, it's, it's directly in the Bible. It says, like, I believe it's in the books of Kings. It says, like, there's a prophet, a prophet before a one of the kings of Israel says, I saw God standing in his divine council. So mm-hmm. it's explicitly in the text. It's basically just the sons of God. So in the Bible, we tend to think of God and his angels. But in the Old Testament, there's really like three tiers. There's God on top, the sons mm-hmm. of God, then the angels below that. Mm-hmm. And the divine council is just God and the sons of God. Then we go, why does God need a divine council? Well, he doesn't. Just like he doesn't need humans. God creates because he's a relational being and he has mm-hmm. relationships uh, with other beings. Be very That's boring just to is. be eternal with nobody to talk to. Right. I guess you could argue that. But God just – but even God, you know, could is still three persons. He yeah. doesn't need anyone else. It's just God loves to create. So he creates sons of gods in the divine realm, and then we are the sons of God on the terrestrial realm, you could say. So, you know, this is sort of like this distinction here. There are spiritual beings that are part of his divine counsel. Mm-hmm. They're not there because God needs their counsel. They're there because God's a relational being and loves relationships. Just like, and we are supposed to be the terrestrial counsel. It's like sort of the way Heiser sort of makes this difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is, I was reading through uh, his books on angels, demons, and the, the unseen realm, the whole, I, Heiser was fascinating i i am very sad that oh, he's yeah. no longer with us i i would have given a lot to interview the guy and just pick his brain just over coffee um but so i didn't intend to go this place when i asked the question but i, I now have to uh because we talked about it a while ago but i'm i'm better educated on it now than i was i what are what are your thoughts then on genesis 6 
Yeah, I'm still not convinced that's actually referring to divine beings. Mm -hmm. And I just, I appeal to the internal evidence on that. I I know Heiser's made the case. Uh, I just think it's it's assuming too much univocality with the, with the, this text. I think mm -hmm. the author is defining sons of God differently in that to just refer to a class of humans. But Got it. as I say in my video on it, I did. That's that's there's that's not a hill worth dying on. There's so much debate about it because the text is so vague. Like mm -hmm. the author's like, yeah, there were these sons of God and they had Nephilim. Anyway, let's. Move it on. is you, weird you, how the reader. <laughs> It's not the kind of you have to assume that there was some general understanding of this because that's the only reason they wouldn't elaborate is that oh well everybody knows about this so carrying along um yeah. but you know if you want to if you want to pull do you have it still? yeah still yeah it's just a, for anybody who's not familiar Genesis the the portion we're talking about is six one through four which is right now probably the most uh, pop culture relevant verse of the Bible just because of where everything is with people talking about Nephilim all the time. I, you know, my bad. Sorry, guys. Um, I was part I was part of that. That's my fault. Uh, <laughs> but the, the thing is, uh, now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So the, the argument is whether these sons of God are a, basically the, the line of Seth is typically the, the direction it's taken, you know, the, the godly line, not Cain's progeny, but those of Seth, who was the good one, um, the one who survived. Obviously, Abel didn't make it. Uh, or if we're talking about the Watchers, the, the angels re responsible for watching over man, and most of that comes out of Enoch, which is an intertestamental book. So that's, uh, I think, the earliest text we have from Enoch is the 4th century? I believe they may... Yeah, I mean, Enoch is really a collection of yeah. books that are sort of strung together. And so I think it starts maybe... Fourth century. I don't know. I have to check on that. I thought part of First Enoch they they found with the the Qumran scrolls, but I might be wrong. Yeah, yeah. They 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 found parts of it there for sure. Yeah, but it's so that one is is one of those, and, and this is why I think that the the way everybody looks at Christianity is kind of, I think people are missing out. Is you know there there's so many cool stories and things in there that you can, mm -hmm. I, I mean just. Just to sit down at the bar and have a drink with your buddies and talk this out would be entertaining. Like you can have mm -hmm. interesting discussions about, you know, we 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 think Greek mythology is interesting, we think Egyptian mythology is interesting, and yet nobody wants to talk about the stuff that's going on in Christianity and Judaism way back when. Uh, but I think right. I think part of that is because there are certain people that are afraid of like thinking too far outside of the the known bounds because they don't want to be you know considered a heretic. Yeah, which so, sucks. But, yeah. Um, so, I mean, moving moving from the 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 Old Testament period into the new, um, you know, I, I wanted to talk about some of the some of the arguments for and against the Trinity. Obviously, the the for column is a little bit more robust than the against column. Um, but there, you know, there's there's one that always stuck out to me that I've had a hard time explaining to people. And that was uh, when Christ is on the cross and I believe it's the ninth hour he yells out. Uh, 
my god, my god, why have you forsaken me? It's like Eli Eli. Uh, I don't remember the rest of the Aramaic, but Lama Thabakthia, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess I, with the way it's been explained this evening, I think it it works. It makes more sense. But you know why? I, I guess the question that I'm the question I'm asked all the time is why would God ask himself why he'd forsaken himself? Well, I mean, let's let's be clear. This is this is Jesus. This is not the Father. He's not asking himself. Uh, this is again. This is one person of the Trinity talking to another. Mm-hmm. One of the things we also need to keep in mind is this is actually a quote from Psalm twenty-two. Yes, Jesus is actually quoting the Psalm, and at the end of the Psalm, you know, the victory for the 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 person that is writing the Psalm. Mm-hmm. It's not this idea that God has actually forsaken them. So Craig Keener says this in his commentary. He says. Uh, so, for example, that Jesus utters the complaint of the righteous, Psalm 22, mm-hmm. might well suggest to early Christians that he was that he participated human, in humanity's ultimate alienation from God and experiencing the pain of death. Mm-hmm. Although Christians are not likely to have invented such a cry, they undoubtedly found great significance in the use of the Psalm 22 and 69 in the Passion narrative. Jewish Christians, like other Jews, recited these Psalms, identifying with the oppressed. To hear Jesus in the, in terms of the Psalms invited them to contemplate how fully Jesus had embraced their condition of suffering the mm-hmm. cry does not imply collapse of faith in what he had already prophesied my god implies continuing trust neither for the gospels nor necessarily for their sources does jesus abandonment and despairing uh, god forsakenness necessarily imply doubt of ultimate triumph mm-hmm. jesus had to know that psalm 22 went on to declare the psalmist vindication so the psalm actually is this is jesus sort of saying uh hey it really sucks right now. I feel like I'm being abandoned, but I know I'm going to get through this. Mm-hmm. So this is more of a cry to the the crowd. Mm-hmm. He's basically saying, hey, remember Psalm 22? It really looks bad. I feel forsaken. This is horrible to go through. I'm experiencing the full weight of suffering it as a human, but I'm going to be victorious through mm-hmm. this. this is really what is coming through on that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I guess this is not directly associated, but would you say that the would it be fair to say that the point of Jesus being here on earth would be so that God could experience the suffering of mankind? Yeah, I would say that that is definitely Christian doctrine there. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that God has to be the savior. God is the one who can only save us from our sins. Mm-hmm. And I think this is, um, I think Christianity really sort of completes the scriptures in this because you have throughout the Old Testament, God raises up a prophet. He fails in some way. Mm-hmm. God raises up another prophet, fails in some way. You know, it's like, who's going to be the Messiah and save us? Look at all the humans that have come before from from Adam to uh, present day. Everyone sucks in some way. Everyone Mm -hmm. is failing. The only one who's really the good guy in the story is God. Mm -hmm. Guess who comes to save us? The Messiah is God himself. Right. I mean, I just think that's that's the beauty in the Christian completion of the scriptures. It 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 foretells of God saving his people and God does force save his people. He doesn't Mm -hmm. use an intermediary. God himself saves his people. Mm-hmm. But how can God be in heaven and on earth as in the person of Jesus? Trinity. Okay, so th- it's all connected. The mm-hmm. Trinity doctrine is essential for the whole salvation plan, and it's uh, essential for the fulfillment of scriptures and that God can become a man, become the king, and save us. You know, in 1 Samuel 8, it says that when Israel wanted a king, they went to Samuel demanding a king, and God said, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Mm-hmm. But God then uses the whole kingdom of David to make himself king again. So we end up with God as king again as we go through this long process of realizing how bad human kings are. 
we eventually get back to God being king, and that's now the new kingdom. Not going to lie, I thought you were going to make a Braveheart reference there uh, as a <laughs> metaphorical substrate to uh, Christ on the cross with Psalm 22, but nope. No, <laughs> I am far too in I'm I'm learning mode to, to make jokes. Fair. Right now. <laughs> this is this is I, I miss this from college. This is this is what it was like to sit and question my professors on things. Fair. Um, that's what I miss most about being in college is is having people smarter than me to ask things about. Um, Thanks. <laughs> you know more about okay, film than okay, I do. Okay. I ask you questions all the time. We realize I'm making the jokes <laughs> yes. for you right now because yes. you're not you're in hyper focus mode. Um, yeah, so the the next place I guess I'd want to take things is is right before we get into question time in 15 minutes is some of the other uh, the other things that are presented. You know, there's I think the 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 group I see you arguing with most recently has been is uh, Islamic apologists about the subject, uh, which yeah. they're fun. They're, they're fun. But, you know, I guess I, can you describe I have the never been less? Go ahead, what were you going to say? I have never been less convinced of a religion until I started dealing with Muslim apologists. I'm just like, oh, yeah, this is false. Thanks for helping me out, guys. So my, I, I have some, I have some scriptural issues with Islam that are are a little bit more granular, like how they the, the story of the birth of Moses and the birth of Christ seem to be admixed together in Islam. But mm -hmm. uh, and then there's there's some other stuff that's in the hadiths that I take issue with. That's more on a moral ground. But in terms of their objection to the doctrine of the Trinity and Christ's divinity, uh, which was a hard rhyme uh, that I just made, but in in regards to that, uh, I guess what is the the Islamic opinion that you encounter, and and how do you argue against it? Because I've seen a lot of that recently. Oh, it's perfectly clear, guys. The the Christian scriptures are corrupted, uh, but we also should listen to them, and they teach that Jesus isn't God. Makes perfect sense. Those those scriptures that have been corrupted and don't teach truth, you should listen to them, is mm -hmm. what they keep telling us. So that's their whole argument, and it is interesting. Uh, the one thing to keep in mind is that they'll try desperately to argue the New Testament doesn't say Jesus is God. And it's mm -hmm. very clear in the Gospels, Jesus is God. Yeah, he says, uh, I was recently... Before, before Abraham was, I am, is, I mean, that's there's not really an argument to be made. There's not an argument to be made with the Gospel of John. It's very clear. He opens by saying Jesus is God in the very first verse. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. It's very clear that Jesus mm -hmm. is God. I mean, you go to Luke 2, it's, it's very clear there too, because Jesus says in the temptations to Satan, when he's being tempted by Satan, only worship God. But then at the end of Luke, in Luke 24, it says the disciples worshipped him at the ascension. So Luke only uses that word for worship to refer to worshiping God. In fact, when you go to Acts, mm -hmm. Cornelius bows down and worships Peter, and Peter grabs it, get up, I'm a man like you. Mm -hmm. So Luke, the way he uses that word, is very clear. This is only something you do before God. And they do it before Jesus. They mm -hmm. worship him. He's clearly being worshiped in the end of Acts. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I've been pointing this out. I mean, recently scholarship has pointed out that in Matthew and Luke, Jesus explicitly identifies himself as Yahweh mm -hmm. because he says he is Lord, Lord. Go to Luke 6, uh, uh, 46, I believe it is. Uh, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Okay, well, what do you mean we call you Lord, Lord? It should just be Lord, right? Why do we have to say it twice? No, that, that doesn't make any sense. Well, if you go to the, the Greek Septuagint, you often see that, for example, Ezekiel uh, would call God Adonai Yahweh. And when that is translated into the Greek Septuagint, they would substitute it as Lord, Lord often. Mm -hmm. So often they would just say, you know, you know, Kyrios, Kyrios. Mm -hmm. Well, 
that and anytime you see Kiros Kiros in a Greek text, it's always referring to God. It's never mm -hmm. referring to anyone else. Okay. Every Greek text, like you know, Jason Staples and Michael Patrick Barber have noted this. Uh, in years ago, uh, Ed Komoshevsky and Robert Bowman Jr. noted this in their book, uh, putting Jesus in his place. Mm -hmm. So every time you see the, the the devil Kiros, it's always referring to God. Well, Jesus says that's who he is. He says directly, I'm Lord, Lord in Matthew 7 mm -hmm. and in Luke 6. Now, they'll try to push back and they'll say, well, no, that's just heightened emotion. Mm -hmm. You know, because Jesus is, you know, this is like people coming to see Jesus at the end of time. It's heightened emotion. We're just saying, Lord, Lord. It doesn't make sense in, in places like Matthew 7, 21 or Luke 6. Right. Because in Luke 6, Jesus is just saying, why are you acknowledging I'm Lord, Lord and not doing what I say? There's no heightened emotion. It's an acknowledgement of who he is. You're acknowledging who I am by saying, Lord, Lord. Mm -hmm. which AKA, AKA means God, but you're not doing what I tell you. That is, you know who I am and you're not doing what I tell you. Right. Like, so there's no sense of heightened emotion and Jason Staples points this out quite mm -hmm. brilliantly. So, and again, you've got to compare this with the fact that they are always quoting the Greek Septuagint. Mm -hmm. Jesus is always calling himself the son of man, referencing Daniel seven, this mm -hmm. divine figure who uh, comes and is given a kingdom forever. Uh, and when he says that at, at, at before the Sanhedrin, they're like, He's committed blasphemy. We need no other proof. You heard it all yourself. Mm -hmm. Like, they're not idiots. He's not just claiming to be the Messiah. They'd be like, okay, you're the Messiah. Where's your army? Let's take on Rome if you are the Messiah. Right. That's not what he's saying there. Wasn't he the is idea. claiming to be, yeah, he's claiming to be this divine figure from Daniel 7, who's given a kingdom of forever. So he was very familiar with the Greek Septuagint. The gospel authors were. The, in the New Testament, the Greek Septuagint is quoted over 300 times. Mm -hmm. And also, Jesus says he is Lord, Lord. That's his background context. It's very clear he is claiming to be Yahweh in Matthew 7 and Luke 6. Mm -hmm. So Jesus explicitly says he is God. And I can even make a case that Mark says Jesus is God. Because Mark, for example, opens his gospel by saying, hey, I'm going to quote Isaiah. Someone is going to come and prepare a way for God himself to come. And then right after that, we read John the Baptist prepares a way for Jesus. Mm -hmm. So he says, Isaiah said, someone's going to, a voice in the wilderness will prepare a way for the Lord. Mm -hmm. John the Baptist appeared and started preparing the way for Jesus. Mark opens his gospel by saying, who has come is God. Mm -hmm. So I guess I, that was one thing I wanted to touch on then was how, and this is something that I probably should know myself already, uh, but it's something that I've just managed to miss in my studies. Why did why does Jesus need to be baptized? Mm, yeah, well, I mean, it says it's, it's to fulfill the scriptures. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what Jesus is doing is reenacting Israel's history and doing it perfectly. Mm -hmm. This is why he goes in the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days, corresponding to Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. And mm -hmm. this time he resists the temptations of the evil one. He overcomes him and defeats him that Israel could not. Uh, Luke Vandeway in his book, um, uh, I believe it's uh, the living footnotes on the on the Gospel of Luke. Uh, he points out Jesus does something weird. He starts up in Galilee, and he does his path down to Jerusalem, but then he goes out east, mm -hmm. across the Jordan, and then comes back to Jerusalem. And, mm -hmm. and it's a weird path. Well, he's following the path of actually Elijah and Elisha. Okay. Uh, he's doing things on purpose to fulfill the scriptures. Uh, this is why he rides a donkey into Jerusalem. This is why uh, he initiates the new covenant as he does with the, the bread and the wine. This is correlating to actually the elders in the book of Exodus going up on Mount Sinai, having a meal with God. Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures through his words, his deeds, his life. Mm -hmm. So he's being baptized because 
He's going through the water, the process. He's going through this whole process. So Jesus says, I believe it's in the Gospel of Luke, you know, I know I don't need to be baptized, but just do it so that, you know, all the dots and the T, all the dots are there, all the T's are crossed. Everything is fulfilled as it is to the letter. So this is about fulfilling the scriptures. Mm -hmm. All right. That answers the question for me. Um, and just, you know, as since we're about 10 minutes out from, from Q and a, if you guys have questions, now is the time to get them in, uh, you know, whether it's a $2 super chat or a $50 super chat, it'll, it'll get answered. So, I mean, do, do, do your thing people. We, uh, if there's one, if there's one person we've had on who I think is not going to be afraid to answer any questions, it's Mike. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I did see a few, I will, I did take a look over at the chat, uh, in the last five minutes. And I, I will say this about, uh, about when we have on religious uh religious interviewees um we had a gnostic on two weeks ago guys like did, <laughs> i mean we we're, we're not we're not trying to give you one version or another and force it down your throats without showing you that there are other ones um the, the point here was i'm curious about the trinity and i want to hear somebody who knows more than i do explain it um and that is exactly what i've gotten and i'm glad for it uh, but yeah, so oh, sorry, real but, quick, sure. just to correct myself, I mean, I said the, the baptism aspect I was referring to is in Luke. It's actually Matthew three. I mixed up that one. Look, that, that's I, I didn't notice. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I guess is there I mean, is there any uh, any story relating to this that you think is is frequently overlooked or something that people should read to better understand the concept? Of the Trinity, mm -hmm. or alternatively, is there any any church father who who you think was a, a really solid uh, teacher when it came to the I subject? Think Augustine is very good in explaining the Trinity. Now he's explaining it from a Latin model, and I would call myself more of a social Trinitarian. Mm -hmm. uh, Doctor Joshua Sijawati's also got a really good paper on the logical problem of the Trinity. I was just talking about it on Twitter, and I got in a big dispute because Muslims started sharing a clip of him that they deceptively edited to make him say that trinitarianism meant there's three gods which i found kind of funny uh but he's got a good paper on it and mm -hmm. he definitely confirms there's only one god in that paper yeah. um but i mean one thing i would really keep in mind is you got to think of this in terms of philosophy of mind mm -hmm. so like can you even define what an agent is can i describe define what can you define the term agent agent Mm -hmm. I, mean, I, I, I would say context i would say somebody who has a specific mission yeah well getting close to it like marcus schlauser says in very general terms an agent is a being with the capacity to act the oh, agency okay. denotes the exercise or manifestation of this capacity Got so it. we think of like an agent as like a conscious person that can act however now now ask yourself this let's say you're driving somewhere do you consciously decide to push the pedal do you consciously decide to turn the wheel or do you sometimes do that sort of stuff on aut autopilot? It's basically autopilot for the most part. Right. But are you not an agent when you're doing that? I guess I'm an agent with the, my subconscious taking the wheel on certain things. Yeah. And that's kind of what I'm getting at with philosophy of mind. The way we can talk about ourselves can often be in the sense of we're, we're, we're one agent, but we can talk about our agency in two different aspects. Mm -hmm. So you're a conscious man in the machine who decides between different desires uh but sometimes you don't do that you just do things on autopilot and you can also talk about your whole mental space your whole mental world as an agent so you could be the narrow sense of agency the, the conscious will that acts 
or you can be your broad sense of agency, uh, which is all your thoughts, your dreams, your emotions, your dispositions, all one. That's all you. Mm-hmm. So like Daniel Dennett, for example, he says like, you know, like we are sort of creating an own our, an agent in that sense that we are responsible for this broad sense of agency because mm-hmm. over time we're like adding different thoughts to it, different desires. So like he says, I have created and unleashed an agent who is myself. If it acts to produce harm, the manufacturer is held responsible. So if I constantly, if I'm constantly deciding to drink and I develop a drinking problem, I've created this broad sense of agency where now I have desires I can't control. If we can talk about ourselves as if we are one agent, but there's two different aspects of our agency that we will sometimes wrestle with, like we'll use terminology like I'm too hard on myself or Mm -hmm. I can't control myself. What do you mean you can't control yourself? There's just you. Mm -hmm. Well, in philosophy of mind, we can talk about ourselves as two and one, technically. Why can't God be three and one? Like, why is it why we why is it that when we get in philosophy of mind, we can see ourselves as two and one? Mm-hmm. And that's all my model of the Trinity is. My model of the Trinity is there is a broad sense of agency, which is God. And then there are three narrow senses, three different, mm-hmm. three different centers of consciousness that all have full access to the divine mind. Mm-hmm. And they're all still God. Right. So in philosophy of mind, the Trinity can make sense. It's not illogical. It's not incomprehensible. We just have to stop comparing it to physical things and start trying to understand the Trinity in the language of philosophy of mind. Because once we understand agency, our own agency can have, we can speak of our own agency as two in one. Mm-hmm. We can start to see, well, I guess God could be three in one. In sense. Right. And then I guess the last thing I want to ask before, before we get to the Q and a section is, is actually about revelation, which I avoid talking about as much as possible. Uh, but it is the, <laughs> um, you know, both revelation, I think also Daniel, and, and Ezekiel have have the same symbolism or the same uh, descriptions of, um, you know, both both God, the Father, and God the Son in physical presence in heaven. So how how does how does that function then? I guess is my question because it's it's a little easier to conceive of it as the Father is is up here and the Son is down on Earth mm-hmm. and the Spirit's kind of inhabiting almost an ethereal realm. Um, and, and moving place to place in a non-corporeal sense. But when you have both the Father and the Son present in one location, which is the actually the background I used for this, this thumbnail, um, I guess, how does, that, how does that factor in? Like, does God the Father always have a physical form, or is that something he can take uh, when he chooses? To, to add into that a little bit, this is going to be a little bit more far removed from a stance of not knowing as much, but this may be helpful for those who aren't as familiar with Christianity. Obviously, you know, within Christianity and and Judaism and, you know, we have souls. Is that, or is there an equivalent in the Trinity form where those forms of consciousness or existence have a spiritual tie that allows them to exist as their own consciousness that is essentially like an arc soul or something i'm I'm making up horrific terminology here but you know is that one way that we can essentially utilize to to think about that or is that totally off the mark i'm not sure you'd have to define your terms more because it's it's hard for me to think what you mean by some of those things so that'd be a whole nother discussion i feel like uh it depends on how we define soul i mean are we defining it in an aristotelian or a platonic sense or a modern sense or i mean there's various ways to define that uh but with regards to the whole the aspect i mean john is, is seeing visions he's not seeing literally how things are happening mm-hmm. or playing out these are visions and the way i talk about you know so 
let's just take the father, for example. The father decides to enter space-time. One thing I remind people is if you're in space-time, you have to look like something. Mm-hmm. It's just a necessary feature that if – it's like if you enter a video game, if you're going to play World of Warcraft, you have to look like something. Yeah. You just can't be a nothing running around the world. You have a character. Mm-hmm. Likewise, if God enters space-time, he's going to look like something. Mm-hmm. You know, Bernardo Castrip, who's an idealist like myself, says, what are humans? What, what, what are our bodies? They, they are just – the way a conscious agent looks in reality. This is mm-hmm. what a conscious agent looks like. Your brain is the manifestation of your conscious activity. Right. It's in not order to interact like with the physical thing. realm, we must have a physical person. Yeah. yeah. It's not like it's something else. It's literally the man. It's the third person perspective of a first manifestation of a first person conscious experience. So a first person conscious experiences, each of you has to manifest as something to interact in a space time. Likewise, if God comes into space time, it's naturally that he's going to have to look like something because he's in space time. That's right. not saying a body is essential to his nature. It obviously isn't. But if he's entering space time, he has to look like something. So I don't really get worried about it when you know some of the more liberal scholars say, God has a body in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you read the first chapter of Genesis, he enters space time to turn the cosmos into his temple. Mm-hmm. He's got to have some sort of physical manifestation if he so, admits he's entering space time. So when God's walking through the Garden of Eden, is that – the father or the son? That's a good question. So I tend to say it's the son. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, maybe because I'm drawing too much from Philo, but he talked about the memra of God walking. So mm-hmm. some commentators looked at this. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. And some mm-hmm. have said, well, that's actually referring to the word of the Lord walking in the garden. I'm not sure how accurate that is, but that is a possibility that this is the word of the Lord walking in the garden. Got it. Understandable. Well, I think that's... So much to digest. I'm going to go back and rewatch this um, several times <laughs> in yeah. preparation for Weird Bible because I'm sure it'll come up. Um, yeah. So and just just to wrap up, think of the Trinity in terms of philosophy of mind, in terms of how you understand your own agency. Use the analogy I gave of Moon Knight or mm-hmm. of Inception or how you and you have your own dreams. Tonight, you're going to be talking to yourself. There's going right. to be multiple persons in your brain for that instance you're dreaming. But you're still one agent, even though you're could be multiple persons of that one mm-hmm. agent for that dream. Yeah, it's it's a complicated subject. This is definitely I'm closer. <laughs> I feel a lot closer to understanding it than I did an hour and a half ago. Uh, that's the good news. Well, but good. with uh, with that said, let's uh, let's switch over. I believe we have a number of questions. Yeah, we got a few. I'm looking forward to the next conversation that we potentially have because that that opening the gate of him entering space time and having oh, a yeah, physical a form. There. Well, to me, it's just like, well, yeah, if he's God and he wants to have a physical form, it may be a physical form that we can't even perceive because, you know, for example, we can only see a very small segment of the electromagnetic spectrum. Mm-hmm. He could show up as gamma rays. Mm-hmm. You never know. <laughs> if, if God is gamma rays. <laughs> I mean, one example, one uh, narrow. Example. It would explain why uh, the Ark of the Covenant melted faces. Yeah, that's that's, that's canon scripture, right? That's not from Indiana Jones. <laughs> no, definitely. Um, although the the Ark did do some funky stuff in in uh, in Philistia. There's uh, there's what is the, that? The Ark did some funky stuff when the Philistines took it. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, I that would be because yeah, the um, the whole when they took it back before Dagon, yeah, they released disease yeah. and everything. Yeah, that's an yeah, interesting story. Yeah, I'm I'm always uh, I'm I'm always curious. We that uh, that's a total conversation for another time. I'm not going to open that can of worms. We can, we can have you back on some other time to talk about the arc. Like, no worries. You want to go through? Absolutely. So starting back uh, from chats that came out at the beginning of the show, uh, trains and stuff. Love the username. Of course, for $5. You do. Of course I do. 
uh, for $5 said, love your stuff. Currently in a semi truck waiting for a load. Also local to you near Lansdale, PA. Keep up the good work. Good luck with the load, man. Good luck. Uh, Hammond for $2 says, inspiring oh, no. for loss of Ussie. I wasn't going to make you read it. I'm glad you didn't make me read it. <laughs> uh, Chow Helsenko. Y'all got to stop ossifying our guests. Yeah. <laughs> you can ossify us, not our guests. Um, uh, uh, Chow Helenko for Canadian $5, I believe, uh, said, I must have the fire of the Holy Ghost within me because it burns when I pee. Oh, no. Again, not making you read this. Thank you. Uh, Bucky <laughs> Swift for five dollars. Please see oh, a doctor yeah. <laughs> or a priest. Uh, I don't think the priest's gonna be able to help with chlamydia. Yeah, fair. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, Bucky Swift for five dollars said, "Didn't Constantine insert the idea of the Trinity into the church, or is that false?" No, nah, it was there a long time before that. But Mike's gonna have a better answer than I will. <laughs> yeah, I just see the recent video I uploaded on my channel. I did. Um, I actually went through this in detail. No, I, I, my, the whole point of the video was to show numerous early church fathers who believed in Trinitarian theology long before Constantine. You got Tertullian, you got Theophilus of Antioch, you've got Clement of Alexandria, you have Origen, you've got, you know, Hippolytus of Rome, you've got Justin Martyr, Irenaeus. I mean, it's just, it's the, all the, all the church fathers are pointing this out. Even in early works like the Didache, they're claiming Jesus is God. Yeah. We're talking about uh, 150 really to 200 years that. before Constantine. Yeah, this is this is utter nonsense that Constantine invented the Trinity, or it just came about in that period. That's not true. Eric for five dollars says, "Can you guys discuss the Mount Abal tablet?" Ooh, yeah, I know you've had different takes on it. Also, thank you both mm -hmm. for helping me get back to where I am with my faith. Oh, thank you. Um, I mean, so I I haven't talked about the tablet in a while because I haven't had a chance to read the the peer reviewed studies that have come out. I you know have you had a chance to take a look at the newer stuff? Um, so I've not taken a look at the new stuff that maybe Scott Stripling came out, but I did have a scholar on my channel when that came out, mm -hmm. uh, a really great scholar, David Schreiner, who has been very helpful for a lot of the research I do. Uh, he actually came on my channel again later and we, we, we I had him on with David Wood and we were going to surprise him. He was going to have to hear all the arguments Muslims make, uh, that Muhammad is in the old Testament for the first time oh, just to no. get his initial reactions. And he was like, oh, the poor guy, <laughs> he was like. He was like, what? No, that's nonsense. What are they? No, that doesn't even make sense. <laughs> but before that, I had him on my channel talk about the whole ball thing. And the problem he's he pointed out in that in that look, there's something here. This is a good finding to some degree, but it seems like Stripling and ABR have overemphasized it mm -hmm. and they've gone too far speculating about what it could be. And so yeah, it's unfortunate. I just think the wrong people found it. And I think yeah. if it does get into some better hands at some point, maybe we'll find out more about it. But right now, ABR just doesn't want to share. So where where it was left off last I was looking into it, it was suggested that it was a, a folded lead tablet with writing on the inside that said something along, <clears throat> something along the lines of uh, Yahweh curse you, a curse of Yahweh be upon you, something like that. Um. I get, and that the tablet dated to around 1200 BC. So I guess based on what, what you're saying, it sounds like something in that was incorrect. Well, the, the, what they said, like the text it says on the inside is just, is, is nutter nonsense. Like they, mm -hmm. they like have this weird idea that it's like, like they, they were trying to show how you trace the actual line that they say is written. And it's just not in any legible fashion at all. Mm -hmm. So there's that. It's definitely a lead tablet. 
Mm -hmm. It probably is a cursed tablet, but we may never be able to actually read it. We don't know what's on the inside. There is, it's Shriner said on my show, there's something there, but we just can't put our thumb on it yet because the experts that should be evaluating have not evaluated and come to any conclusions. So just wait to hear more at this point. Just see what comes out. To to give a a reason why that would be a pretty major find in is it is it Joshua? Yeah, yeah. There's there's a line where uh, Joshua is instructed to put a curse upon Mount Ebal. So if they were to find a physical tablet with a curse on it on Mount Ebal, uh, it would it, it would uh, corroborate that the Israelites were there in 1200 BC. And that the Exodus well, was around that time. Well, I mean, I did a whole ex- a series called the uh, Exodus uh, Exodus documentary called Exodus Rediscovered, and it was found at Joshua's altar. So we have found an altar on Mount Ebal mm-hmm. called uh, that, that you know Zertal basically said is probably Joshua's altar. It fits to the right time. It's in the right location. Some have said, well, it's on the wrong side of the mountain. But if you actually read Joshua carefully, it never says that the mm-hmm. altar has got to be on the side facing Gerizim. That's just a conjecture that people that don't like the altar have made up. In At the altar, there's no evidence of pig bones. Um, it fits with um, the material culture of the Israelites. Mm-hmm. It seems like it's Joshua's altar. Mm-hmm. But the cursed tablet is still up in the air. And unfortunately, the wrong people have it. That's unfortunate. Um, well, it's, I love I love academia. It's everybody's doing everything the right way and not at all in the most inefficient way possible. Uh, Moving on. Uh, DJ talks randomly for $20 says, Hey, look, two of the people who helped me regain my faith. Aw, thank you. Cool. Uh, Hammond for $2 says, Hard question for Mike. Is God a city boy or a redneck? Ooh. <laughs> depends on, um, depends on what part of history we're in. I mean, when he's with Abraham, he's a cut redneck. And then when he's with David, he's a city boy. He's like, yeah. I want the temple in Jerusalem built. I'm a city boy. But I mean, like, you know, I, God is a God of all people. So he's he uh, he celebrates city dwelling and he celebrates living in nomadic lifestyle or as a farmer. He also condemns a couple of cities pretty aggressively. But that's that's a different thing. He's um, traveling. Yeah. And he, can, and he condemns and he condemns um, the nomads. The Amalekites mm-hmm. were like nomadic raiders that went around. So he yeah. was just against sin, really. Uh, the Castman seven 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 gave us. I think that's two hundred yen. I believe so. So thank you for that. Thank you, uh, Ryan Whitcup for four dollars and thirty four cents. Love the specificity of the number there. Uh, so is it like when the Power Rangers morph? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's exactly. <laughs> we'll like. say yeah. <laughs> whatever. It, whatever that's in context for, sure. Probably the the Trinity. The, the Trinity. The three. The three parts. Or the three beings and the three consciousness coming together to form one God. Yeah. Uh, horrible. <laughs> this is this is bringing me back to the early 2000s in an uncomfortable way. Yeah. Right. Source Energy for 1999 says, don't know if you'd like to talk about the flood anymore, but Burkle Crater YouTube uh, Oz Geology, I believe it has some effect on religions who believe in cycles of Earth, also 8,000-year-old landslide uh, Doggerland Archipelago. I'm assuming some words were left out because of the uh, the character limit, but yeah, I love talking about the flood still because I think it's one of the, probably one of the funniest uh, incidences in terms of things people deny happened that certainly happened. Um, I, I think the problem is that 
people have tried to date it to like 4000 BC. And mm -hmm. in my opinion, that is way too recent. And it's taking the first books of the like the Genesis specifically way too literally. Um, you know, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts? Because the way I look at it is if there, there's two possible ge geological events that happened that we know for sure happened, that could be that. One of them is the the flood that created the Black Sea about 7,500 years ago. Um, and the mm -hmm. other one is Meltwater Pulse 1B, which was 11,600 years ago. Uh, Meltwater Pulse 1B would have destroyed any civilization that existed anywhere on the planet, whereas the, the 7,500 year ago one would have only hit stuff in the Near East and the Black Sea. Yeah, I actually read a paper on this a while ago. Uh, there was actually a guy that made a pretty good argument that uh sometime in that around the period you were just talking about in the middle east in the mesopotamian region there was some sort of mega flood event that caused mm -hmm. uh, a mega lake in the region for about a year mm -hmm. and the water just could not drain out fast enough so it mm -hmm. was there for a while so there probably was some giant mega lake that went it filled in the Persian Gulf and went up the rivers mm -hmm. basically turning the whole place into a mega lake for about a year or so gotcha and when, when was that again? I don't remember the exact dates he gave because okay. this is a while since I did it, but I, I talk about it in my video on, on flood archaeology. Yeah. So when I, I would ask, when you read that in Genesis, that it clearly says that the whole earth was flooded. Do you take that in a, a metaphorical sense that, uh, well, this was their whole world? Or do you take it as something else? Well, I don't believe in the global flood. I think it was a regional. And I think that's in the text. For example, in, in chapter eight, it says tops of mountains were seen. So it mm -hmm. says, okay, so the waters receding and they saw tops of mountains. Mm -hmm. Then it says down in like chapter eight, verse nine, it says the dove found no place to set her foot for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that obviously can't be literal mm -hmm. because you, you're already noting you're seeing the tops of mountains in the distance. Right. So it's hyperbolic language is my argument. If it's hyperbolic in verse not in verse uh, eight nine, why is it not hyperbole before? Got it. I see what you're saying. Excellent. DJ talks randomly again for five dollars, saying, "What are y'all's thoughts on Atun and the religion?" I I assume I assume this is about the the ancient Egyptian monotheism that lasted like thirty years. I. I haven't studied it extensively. It is not a perfect parallel with Judaism. Um, I've seen some people suggest it. Do you know what this is talking about, Mike? The, the Aten cult? Yeah, yeah. it's it's not. Uh, I've seen a lot of people who suggested that it was a pharaoh who converted to Judaism. And it just because Judaism was in its infancy, it didn't get recorded that way. Um, to me, I, I don't quite agree with that. I think Aten is, is just too... Too much its own thing. What about you? Well, I mean, I did read, I read a book. I, read, I did read some books on that. I read one by James Hoffmeyer on the Aten, on mm -hmm. Akhenaten, uh, and he makes the case that well, one thing the uh, it's not, it may not be monotheism. It may be more henotheism, for example. Mm -hmm. And it definitely was something that sort of evolved, starting mm -hmm. with the reign of Amenhotep II. It starts to evolve and build up to him. Mm -hmm. uh, so. No, he makes the case it's it's too distant from the Jude, mm -hmm. Jude, uh, Judaism. There there is a psalm that matches something we found in the the Aten like inscriptions in similar ways, but he makes the case that this could just be like cultural competition mm -hmm. uh, aspect. So I mean, yeah, I don't think it's Judaism. I don't think that's what happened. He was clearly 
just trying to say we should only worship this one God. He makes the case that it, he speculates, but he says it could have been just the ancient religion of the Egyptians that, uh, or at least that's what the the Akhenaten kept, uh, the Akhenaten cult thought, because they were really worshiping what they said was the God Ra, who manifests as the Aten. Mm-hmm. And so he, they were just trying to make the case that maybe, maybe they were getting, they thought they were getting back to some sort of like more henotheistic roots or monotheistic roots. But I mean, that's all way too speculative. Yeah. Would this? I mean, would it? That doesn't line up with the Hyksos quite right. No, Hyksos come about 200 years or so before yeah, uh, Akhenaten. So you have, uh, yeah, you have the Hyksos in the um, the second intermediate period, then you have the New Kingdom. And in the New Kingdom, you have the uh, 18th Dynasty. And Akhenaten is t- towards the end of the 18th Dynasty, right before the rise of the 19th Dynasty. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so that would have that would have been during the captivity, depending on which if you take the later date. Um, yeah, I take the late date. Yeah. Me too. I, I think it makes more sense. Also, and I mean, I don't know about you. For me, it's the the mention of the the Ramses city. Ra- yeah, uh, Ramses. Yeah, that's Pithom. a big one. And, they just can't. It can't and that's be where all the archaeological that. evidence is. I mean, yeah. all the archaeological evidence is there. You have Avaris abandoned during the period of Ramses, mm-hmm. and then forty years later in Canaan. You have Israelite settlements and you have a population explosion. So yeah. it actually matches the biblical timeline well. Yeah, I think it's the later date for sure. Um, but just really quickly before we hop to the next one, just thinking of uh, Judeo-Christian similarities in relation to uh, religious structures uh, might be worth mentioning that one that you uncovered uh, in America. Uh, I can't remember if it was Mississippian or if it was the other. Oh, there's a bunch of American. There, there's a bunch of Native American. I religious beliefs and spiritual beliefs that are frighteningly in line with Judaism, um, primarily amongst the Algonquin. That was it. Uh, the, 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 the Carolina Algonquin and there, it should be mentioned that this is probably to some extent, the, the English and French missionaries reading in their own beliefs to what the natives were saying. There there's, there's entirely, there's, there's plenty of possibility regarding that. But if you look at it, uh, the the Algonquin of the East Coast of the Carolinas, they had a belief in a a great spirit being who was the creator of all mankind and the entire world. And they had a flood story and they had uh, something akin to the Adam and Eve story. Um, It's all very it's not a perfect point for point parallel, but all over North America, you get a lot of these um a lot of these stories that are very similar. For example, we were talking about the uh, the the Dene, specifically the Decho Dene, uh, for our, our episodes coming out Friday. And their belief was they they have a story about uh, the the world being covered in ice and snow, and then suddenly there's an explosion of warmth, and there's a flood, and everybody has to pile onto a giant tree to survive, and then they repopulate the earth from there. Uh, and of course, it's all the animals who are repopulating everything, and it's kind of flips Noah's Ark on its head. Um, but you get stuff like that all through it. I think it's the Algonquin have, uh, have one where there's a, it, it's not, it, uh, if I try and get it off the top of my head right now, it's not going to come out right. But yeah, there's a lot of have Native you, American uh, religions that it seem monotheistic. Have you seen my documentary, The Case for Ancient Monotheism? Nope, but I will. should watch it. It's, it's now <laughs> on my list. You'll the, like it. The required reading after the, after the fact. Love it. I'm excited. I'm, I want to yeah. watch it for next time. Uh, all right, Coogan for 4.99 says no question. Just wanted to support you guys. Enjoy the work. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, the Castman 777 for 2,000 yen. 
uh, says, Mike, I'm a big fan of your work, especially on the flood and theistic evolution. Lore Lodge, I recommend interviewing Jimmy Akin, uh, a Catholic Aiken. apologist. Akin? Looks like Akin. Uh, a Catholic apologist yeah. who has his own mystery podcast called uh, Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Yeah, I'd be down. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, he's a cool guy. Yeah, I, I love getting to sit down and talk about the the more, I, I don't, for lack of a better term, mythological aspects, the more supernatural aspects of, of religion, whether it's Christianity or, or something else. Hmm. Fun. DJ talks randomly back at it again for $10, saying, semi-jokingly, or joking question, uh, in the Old Testament and New Testament, God clearly has favoritism for Elijah. Elijah, the biggest smartass in the Bible. <laughs> what are the odds God is a major fan of comedy? Oh, I've said for a long time that there is a God and he is very funny. <laughs> um, there's there are yeah, several yeah. things that happen in the Bible where you're just like, ah, you <laughs> like, I think the statue I, of Dagon falling apart is probably one of the funniest ones. But yeah, I would agree. I also think Elijah was probably a Gentile. I don't think he was a um, of the descent of Israel. And the reason being is because there's a there's a theme that sort of runs through Samuel and Kings where Israel's just become so corrupt, God has to pull the most unlikely person to help them. So it opens with Samuel being from the tribe of Ephraim, but doing the function of a Levite because the sons of Eli have become so corrupt mm -hmm. that now Samuel, who came from Ephraim, has to sort of be in the tabernacle and mm -hmm. do the duties. And I think that theme continues because you time you get to Elijah, Israel's become so corrupt. And the reason why it specifically says he is a tish. He is Elijah, the Tishbite of the Tishba. And the word for Tishba is weird. That actually means foreigner. Mm -hmm. So it says he is a Tishbite of the foreigner. So it could be like a slang term for like that foreign guy of the foreign community mm -hmm. is now a prophet. So he very well could have been a Gentile. It's interesting. There's that, That's another aspect that I, I'd love to talk with you. And maybe if we get Isaiah on for it too, uh, that will be good. But the sort of this... I think there's a general idea that the God of Israel was only the God of Israel and that there were, he, he didn't give a, give a damn about anybody else. Uh, but then you have the story, like the entire book of Jonah is about God sending Jonah to Nineveh to preach to people who are not Jewish about following the right God and doing everything the right way. Mm -hmm. And then Jonah of course succeeds and they change their ways. And then he's mad that he doesn't get to watch God nuke a city, um, which is just, like it's, I, I love, I love to bring that one up. Whenever people are like, "Well, you know, David had multiple wives, and Solomon had other deities, so clearly." And I'm like, "No, no, no. The the people in the Bible, the protagonists, are not always the good guy. <laughs> Sometimes they're they're making errors, and you need to recognize that." Uh, but yeah, that's that's one I'd love to talk about at a later date, though. Pity for the gourd. Pity for the gourd. Uh, Great Bingus for ten dollars says the Quran is full of contradictions, conflicting textual variants, and straight up grammatical errors. Please look up the quote variant Quran YouTube channel. He has expertly shown the Quran's inconsistencies. Yeah, from from an academic standpoint, this isn't even my like necessarily my personal beliefs about Islam or Muslims. I, I generally have no issue with people who are Muslim. In the same way, I have no issue with people who are Catholic or Protestant or Hindu or whatever. It's it depends on how you live your faith. That's that's what I'm going to judge you for. Um, but there, I, I find, just academically, I find a lot of issues with the Quran. Um, it, I, and, uh, you know, not least among them what you said earlier, which is, yeah, the, the Christian and Jewish texts are corrupt and we shouldn't listen to them, but also we should listen to them when it suits 
our aims. Which... Well, I mean, the, the Quran says over and over again, it's, it never says that the gospel, the, the, the prior scriptures have been corrupted. In fact, it says that, you know, Allah, Allah's revelations can't be corrupted. And it tells Christians to judge by the gospel. Mm -hmm. All right, well, I'm doing exactly what Allah told me to do. I'm judging by the gospel, so I have nothing to worry about. And then it has problems as well. Like it says that the Jews think Ezra is the son of God. That's nonsense. It says crucifixion existed in ancient Egypt. That's nonsense. I mean, no. they're just historical blunder after the blunder in there. Syrians that the Romans got it from. Uh, Persians, I believe. It started, may have started actually in Egypt. Uh, very late, though, like after yeah. the Babylonian period. Yeah, it's not the it's not the pharaohs doing it. It's it comes from it comes from Middle East, but it's not coming from the Middle East at the time of Moses. So it's a, just to clarify for people who may be confused, it's less about the geo, geo, less about the geographical origins and more the time frame. Yeah, it's the it's the not the geography, it's the temporal. Got it. Issue. Got it. Yeah. Yeah, because I think yeah. saying it, it it wasn't Egypt, it might have been Egypt. I think might have confused yeah, people if we didn't clarify that. So. Well, so that's Fair that's enough. the other thing is like if we're talking about Egypt, it, it's it's going to get pedantic, but there is a significant difference between uh, what, what would be called Kemet and what would be called Egypt. The, the Egyptians, as they knew Egypt, had a completely different society than Hellenistic Egypt did. Um, and that's when it became called like that. Egypt is the Greek term. Hmm. The, the Egyptians had their own word for Egypt for themselves, all of that. Uh, and so, yeah, the when you say Egypt, it's kind of like saying um, Germany. Because the Germans of Caesar's time were not the Germans of today, and the Egyptians of Moses' time were not the Egyptians of Christ's time. Makes sense. Uh, Insai? Is that how you can say that? Insai. In Insai? In yeah. I, mm. uh, for four ninety nine says, uh, Michael, been a huge fan for a long time. I appreciate your intellectual approach to such an emotional subject. My question, what is your chest tattoo? <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, here. It is cool. Oh, that's wild. Yeah, I'm gonna get it. I got, I'm gonna try to get it finished this year. Um, but yeah, I'm supposed to go up around the back. But yeah, what what is it? Supposed Just... to be a Celtic like wing type thing. Oh, okay, I got you. I I love the Celtic knots. Do you have it's, one on your cross? No, 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 not this one. Um, I am thinking I'm gonna get this filled in with a cross and get the actual text up here. But oh, uh, that'd be cool. Yeah. Uh, next up is KJ47 for $5 saying, Howdy, how do y'all explain Mark 1332 to non-Trinitarians? Didn't you have a debate with Sean Griffin, Kingdom in Context, on this topic? And I have it pulled up if anybody wants me to read it for at Please least a do. chat. Uh, so, perfect. So it was, just to uh, confirm for everybody, it was Mark 1332. And that is, uh, the heading there is no one knows the day or hour. And the specific line is, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. A good question, actually. Well, let me just read another verse. So, uh, first, first Corinthians two, verse two, Paul says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Did Paul know more? than jesus christ and him crucified well sure what is he saying he's not saying he's not making a claim to his lack of knowledge he's saying i'm not, i didn't proclaim anything other than this mm -hmm. likewise that it's the same word that same greek word is what we see in mark 13 32 for no it's a word that can be used for proclaiming mm -hmm. or for announcing 
So what is Jesus saying? In context, it seems Only to be the saying, Father will proclaim look, the end. Will announce when this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, so I think that's probably what's getting at here. Uh, I don't think this is him saying that he doesn't know when he can literally read the hearts in Mark earlier. He can read people's hearts in earlier in Mark, like when the Pharisees are questioning why he's healing a paralytic man. It says he was able to read their hearts. And First Samuel, I believe it's 16, says only God can, says God knows the hearts. In, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, the only person who can read hearts is God. Mm-hmm. Jesus can do that. So mm-hmm. there's another way that Mark shows Jesus as God. In this section, it seems to be he's just using the sense of no uh, and the sense that this is the father will proclaim when this is going to take place. Yeah, I think a huge, definitely a huge issue with with a lot of this comes from the fact that the vast majority of people are not reading the book in the language it was written. Right. Which is, I mean, that's why there's so many translations that say different things. Would you say that? I know there was one uh, that was essentially a translation that did the best it could to have a word for word replication. What would you say would be kind of the best that you've encountered Uh, to recommend for people? I mean, in terms of modern English, probably the American Standard Bible is my favorite. What about you? Yeah, I would go with either ESV or NASB. I mean, no translation is perfect in my view, but no. also Robert Alter's got a really good translation of the Hebrew Bible that I encourage people to get. Yeah, I think if you can get your hands on an English language Tanakh, then that's always a good thing to have just in your back pocket. I would recommend anybody seriously interested in studying should have, at the very least, a a word-for-word style translation study Bible, like like an ASB or an ESV. Um, and then also you're going to want to have an interlinear and Strong's Concordance, because those three things are going to be essential to the study. Uh, Molten Amber eighty five for one ninety nine. Thank you very much. Says uh, thoughts on Hasman Hotel. If you've seen it, uh, I haven't. What, what is that? Is it appears to be a show from the uh, I guess from this year actually just came out. What's it about? I'm not sure. In an attempt to find a nonviolent alternative for reducing hell's overpopulation, the daughter of Lucifer opens a rehabilitation hotel that offers a group of misfit demons a chance at redemption. Mm. all right <laughs> so now we have a conversation oh boy there's there's a lot of problems there i don't i don't watch a lot of tv like yesterday i went to i was gonna go i was invited to this superb owl party i was really excited to see an owl and they just watch <laughs> football the whole time i was like where's this superb it's owl superb very owl. disappointed <laughs> very disappointed also known as Bohemian Grove. Never mind. Sorry. Super- <laughs> oh my God. I saw somebody who they, they kind of like drew their own owl over Washington, DC mm-hmm. and then had a picture of the Bohemian Grove symbol. And they were like, Oh my God, do you see it? Meanwhile, Washington, DC was built half a century before the Bohemian club even existed. Uh, it's like, come on, come on guys. Although the Illuminati did use an owl. Um, Which version of the Illuminati? Uh, the, the original actual ones, I, I believe, used, uh, used an owl. Did we cover that in our video? Yeah. That's what I thought. Cool. I know nothing about it. They were a bunch of weenies who decided they, they needed Freemasonry to be, uh, not religious. Who's the one, oh, we can't say his name, can we? The one 
yeah, that one of the um there's Adam Weishaupt and then there's another guy whose whose name is uh difficult to say on YouTube without getting flagged for hate speech. Yeah, and it's because it's German. And uh yeah, I just can't. They're they're German words that you shouldn't. One is his first name is Adolf, which is just very very unhelpful for what his second name is which is his last name is spelled well it's von but uh k-n-i-g-g-e which is just simply something you cannot say adolf von that on on youtube and and hope to stay monetized Mm. yeah anyway interesting illuminati history for you folks uh but going back to the question that was asked do we have any thoughts on the has-been hotel Nope. Not, not good ones. <laughs> I haven't I haven't seen it, and I will say this much. Uh the idea that that demons can be redeemed is entirely outside of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Like that's just not there. And and all of the extra biblical literature, like the intertestamental stuff, Book of Enoch, all of that suggests that demons are punished in a very, very aggressive way. So we'll say it's optimistic at the very least. Optimistic at the very least. Okay. Uh, next would be from Cakes for nine ninety nine. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, says, this is something I've always wondered. Something like when Jesus came back to life, others came back to life too? Uh, around Matthew, or sorry, Matthew 27.52. Could you explain more about that? I do have that pulled up as well. Um, yeah, that's about the tombs opening up uh, yes. when Jesus. So when Jesus dies, Matthew says the tombs open up another. And people came back to life there's two ways to look at this one mike lacona argues it could just be like uh hyperbolic language saying basically that hell is like it's like hell froze over guys you won't believe it kind of thing mm-hmm. uh, that's a possibility another one is that you, you can't to think about it like the tombs at that point there wouldn't have been that many people because you were only in a tomb for a year took your bones out and you put them in a bone box so it. it's not like you're gonna have a, a parade of zombies coming through it's gonna be very very limited people if it's a literal miracle mm-hmm. so you and it's you know even the poor people wouldn't even get tombs so it's only gonna be like some of the more rich they're gonna have that happen i, I will but, say so there's just, two ways to look at it just reading it uh i think is interesting because it says here uh, and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So yeah, it's it's vague and we don't know. Fair. The holy city sounds like Jerusalem. I was thinking a little bit more uh, spiritual. Oh, you were thinking like they were raised into into heaven. Yeah, into heaven. Yeah, that's an interesting. I'm gonna look into that. That might be a good. A good especially considering topic. it says the the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were mm-hmm. raised mm-hmm. so yeah. i'm no biblical scholar by any means but i'm just throwing out what came to mind well there's also a semicolon there which could mean that it's a an entirely separate thought what after the show okay <laughs> i think there's a certain amendment you're thinking of <laughs> <laughs> Is that a semicolon in there? I think so. Okay. Uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it just came to mind. Uh, oh, boy. Spitting things out here. Uh, Elena de Howler, Werewolf Queen, which is a mouthful of a name, but one that is undoubtedly remarkable. 
uh, for four ninety nine says, as someone who's Irish, uh, Aaron Gabra, uh, what's your opinion on the story of how St. Patrick explained the Trinity? Uh, I would need a refresher on that. Um, yeah, if I remember correctly, I don't, I don't like it. I don't think it works well. I have to go back and check it. That yeah, I'll, I'll pull it up in another tab and, and see if I can quickly find a uh, summary. Because St. Patrick's bad analogies is the first thing that comes up. <laughs> Phenomenal. Uh, what did he say about the sh- uh, St. Patrick used the shamrock to explain the whole trinity? Yeah, I the three like leaves of the shamrock represented the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three distinct but inseparable parts of the Christian Godhead. Ah, boy. Is it better than the milk? It's better than the milk. I'd say it's better than the milk for sure. And I didn't even read the whole milk analogy. It gets weirder. Oh, no. (laughs) The milk analogy gets weird, you don't say. Yeah, and, that's that's and the Holy the Spirit and the Holy Spirit milked him because his breasts were full, and it was necessary for him that his milk should be sufficiently released. Uh, yeah, it's it's horrible. I'm telling you, there's a reason I wanted to bring it up, and it wasn't because I thought it was good. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get through, it's not good. We're no. almost to the end here. Uh, Wesley Aaron Roth from oh, hey, Wesley says, uh, IP, big fan of everyone here. Uh, inspiring philosophy, I believe he means. Yep. Uh, love having Aiden and uh, at the castle, Michael getting contact with me about coming out for an appearance. Yeah, so that is uh, Wesley Roth from uh, the, the, the Timcast network. Uh, and, oh, yeah, so um, I, I've met everybody down there on a few occasions, I've been a guest on Pop Culture Crisis. Uh, so if you if you have any interest in being a guest on one of their shows, I can absolutely put you in contact with people. They've yeah, got a whole bunch of stuff. They've got yeah, they've got Pop Culture Crisis. They've got the Culture War. They've got the, the actual the regular shows that I think I think you'd have a lot of fun with that one. And I would love to see you on yeah. there because I love I love Ian so much. But sometimes he says things about Christianity that make me just. Yeah, people have been asking me to go on Timcasts in some way for a while. So if you can hook me up, that'd be amazing. I'd oh, I can get you. That. I can get you in contact with them like this week. Perfect. That'd be yeah. awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Z the God for four ninety nine says, as someone who has never fully read the Bible, which would be better to start on, New Testament or Old? Good question. Yeah, it's like you the, know that that's it. It depends on your own psychology. Like for me, it was good to start in Genesis, and then I did I did Genesis up to like joshua mm-hmm. and then judges and then i was like i need a break and i went to the new testament and then yeah. i read like gospels and acts and then romans um so i mean when i started with my daughter though we did john then we did genesis mm-hmm. and then we're doing luke so find out what you think is best some people want to so, typically with pastor says you start with the gospels mm-hmm. so you go to like depending my pastor will say i gotta find out who the person is but if they're like a get her get her done type of person we do mark if they're more of a sensual person, we do John. If they're more of like a scholarly type person, we do Matthew. Or, you know, if they're more of like a um, extrovert, they do Luke. So it depends. I always say it, just go pick a gospel, do there. Then maybe do Genesis and work your way up to see how everything points to Jesus. Yeah, I think I, I would I would agree that you don't need to read it in order. And doing so can actually be detrimental. Um, but yeah, I think I, I would start with either probably Matthew or John and then go back and read Genesis and then work your way through the Torah and then go back to the gospels. 
Um, I'm, I'm kind of with you on that one that there's, it depends on what you're looking for, what you're looking to get out of it. Um, but yeah, I, I'm in agreement there. I think reading Paul's letters should probably come last. Um, in my opinion, because there's just so much referential material that you want to, you want to have a good sense of everything else first. Right. The Castman seven, seven, seven back at it again for 500 yen saying, Mike, here is the real question. Do you believe in the Wendigo? And did Teddy Roosevelt start the National Park Service to call the Wendigo problem? We're never going to escape this. First of all, Teddy Roosevelt, was he, was he even human or did he, was he come, did he come from the moon? We, we asked the real question, but we didn't get to the Wendigo problem. What planet was Teddy Roosevelt from? I can't even answer the Wendigo question until we figure that out. And also, did he hunt vampires? I don't know. Possibly. Probably. We'll never know. There's a story implying he had a run-in with Bigfoot. The, the Bauman story he tells that, of course, you're like, okay, well, Bauman is clearly you, Teddy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> weird name to choose, but all right. Um, yeah. And also, I feel like the, the Teddy Roosevelt and the National Park Service thing is going to be our cylinder. Yeah. It's going to be our cylinder. Oh, oh, that's it. Yeah, that's that's all. I thought, I'm, not ex- I'm not explaining the cylinder thing on this show. No, no, I thought you were going to tell the Bauman story. Oh, no, I mean, the ba- we talked about the Bauman story a million times. Do you do you know the story I'm talking about, Mike? Um, No. This this guy uh, who Roosevelt simply refers to as Bauman doesn't give him a, a first name or anything. But uh, he's off hunting up uh, near the, the Idaho, um, I think it's the Idaho-Montana border. And uh, he tells this story about how these two hunters, one of them was Bauman, the other's unnamed, um, went up into the mountains. And there was an area where nobody really hunted or trapped because there had been some prospectors who were killed and eaten a couple years earlier. Uh, and they figured it was a bear or whatever. They go up to hunt. They set their traps. They, they come back and their camp's been destroyed. And there's footprints, but it's getting dark, so they don't really pay much attention to them. I figure it was just a bear, and they, they set everything up. Um, and then a little while later, Bauman's partner walks over to the tracks, and he looks at them and notices that the, there's only there's only two sets. Like, there's only two, two prints. Uh, and he, he looks at Bauman, and he goes, Bauman, the bear has been walking on two legs, which is typically not something that bears do unless their front legs are injured, uh, or they're trying to get a good look at something. So, you know, the, Bauman and his, his buddy are a little wary about everything, but they keep going off to do their thing. And then uh, they they come across, basically the camp gets destroyed again the next day. I'm trying to remember the exact details. But by the end of the story, uh, Bauman's partner heads back to pack up camp because they're both getting a little uncomfortable with everything that's going on. Bauman goes to check the traps. Uh, he gets back and his partner has been killed. The camp is a mess. And uh, it appears that, you know, something more than wild animal attacked him and he gets out of there uh but yeah a lot of people have suggested that the story is not in fact about a bear walking on two legs or about a man named bauman but teddy roosevelt finding a way to say hey something weird happened to me in the woods (laughs) could be i have no clue it's it's a good one it's a good one yeah it's a fun fun i would recommend giving it a read it's short but it's one of those things you're like huh okay teddy (laughs) all right (laughs) i'm made of wax larry what are you made of um kellen the official data for 556 nice said no question just giving support thank you i don't believe in the christian god uh, yes 
uh, but I find the mythology interesting. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Kellen. I don't believe in your gods either, but fist bump it is. <laughs> uh, totally Not Jamo for $5 says, Hey, been listening for a while. How much would I have to pay to get you to do a video on the Berserk manga? I feel like it's right up your alley. Ah, uh, you're going to have to pay me a lot to read anime. <laughs> that's that's going to be a discussion. You should, uh, you should do an episode on the, the, the Nahani Valley up in Canada. It is <laughs> so funny you mentioned that because we literally just filmed it. Yeah. Oh, really? Cool. That two right. hours again. Yeah, the reason we had to scarf down tacos at the beginning of this is because we ran late, didn't have yeah. time for dinner. <laughs> so, it's yes, an, video coming out. Stories. Yeah, video coming out on Friday about the Nahani Valley. It's going to be actually, we're, we're, we talked about it like a year and a half ago, but I didn't do as good a job. So this one is more detailed, better sources. And something went wrong with the export on that one. So there's green, green flashes, flashes that that's will no thing. longer exist. But yeah, you you will get your <laughs> Nahani Valley wish very soon. Yes. Um, nice. Awesome. Uh, the Castman777 back at it again for 500 yards says, what Old Testament canon do you hold to? Uh, do you hold to the 39 books or do you believe that there are more Old Testament books? Ooh. Uh, I, I, I hold to the... Go ahead. I hold to the right one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there. so there are there are books that are referenced that we don't have, uh, like like Jasher. Um, but I, the ones we do have that are extra testamental, I, I don't take it. I, I don't take them as actual scripture, uh, that depend that obviously there's various reasons. I don't think Maccabees is scripture because Maccabees isn't scripture. Um, but you know, it's, then there's stuff like Enoch, which I don't think Enoch is scripture because I see no evidence that 10,000 foot tall giants ever walked on the planet. Um, so, you know, it's, it, I think that they are valuable in that they can give you some context as to how people at the time thought and what discussions were going on. But as far as the, the, the books that I take to be scripture, I judge that based on, uh, you know, the, the evidence for them being scripture and the, the opinions of the church fathers. The last one we have here is from Hammond for $2 and says, what I think is the most poignant question of the uh, night, do you believe in life after love after love? I mean, I believe in life after <laughs> life. That's, um, that's a reference to uh, N.T. Wright. He, um, N.T. Wright talked about the resurrection as life after life after death. Uh, so I guess it's just sort of a play on that, I would assume. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I mean... I, I I believe in life after love. I would imagine the song comes into it as well. That's that's what I was thinking. Do you believe in life after love? Yeah, that's what I assumed we were dealing with. Um, one didn't just come in. Yep. Uh, Eric for two dollars says, "Watch and react to St. Patrick's bad analogies." Thursday it is. Yeah, <laughs> that's fun. Thursday I Thursday's live stream. I will do that. Um, all I right. Love that video. Yeah. Well, let's uh. I think that brings us about to the end of it. We're a little bit over, unfortunately. Sorry about that. I didn't realize what time it was. Um, but yeah, uh, Mike, thank you so much for coming on. This was uh, enlightening in many ways. Um, <laughs> and we're, we're going to have to talk about some other subjects in the future because there's a few things I want to pick your brain about as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, everybody can can definitely find you at Inspiring Philosophy on YouTube, but where else are you? Yeah, I, um, I'm on TikTok under the same name, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Those are the, the five main ones I use. 
Uh, I'm apparently on threads, but like someone else does that because I don't care anymore. I've hit my <laughs> social media sites. So That's yeah, those fair. are the five ones basically, but you'll see me on YouTube a lot. I'll be streaming on my channel tomorrow to responding to that God awful video, Satan's guide to the Bible that kind of went viral and just made so much, so many bad arguments that mm -hmm. we're going to have to address that. You're going to have to cover that too at some point. TikTok, I guess I got this. Don't worry. I got this. I got. I already got all my notes laid out. This is going to be easy. It's just a bad video. It's just a bad video. <laughs> yeah, Satan's Guide to the Bible is certainly something. That's. I've become very irritated with people uh, who seem to think that Freemasonry is Satanism. By the way, not because I'm a Freemason, but because it's just really bad argumentation. Um, if anything, if anything, it's Gnostic. Uh, <laughs> if you want to. If you want to label Freemasonry as any sort of religion, it's closest to Gnosticism. Uh, but it's not Satanism. Um, Levi was, Levi all was I, such a all I know about All I know about Freemasonry is I have a sword that one of my grandfathers had. It's like a Scottish Rite, like Freemason sword yeah. from like the early 1900s. All I know Swords are cool. I got a couple of them over in the yeah. corner, actually. Um, we got to hang those up in the news place. Actually, where are they? I see the belts, but I don't see the swords. Over here, maybe? I'll figure it out. Anyway, Mike, thank you so much for coming on. Um, we, we've got a lot to talk about in the future, so I'm excited to, to talk to you again sometime. But I will let you uh, let you out of here, because I'm sure you got a life to live over there. And I can see it just got dark, yeah, so yeah. the depression must be coming. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll be happy to come on again anytime you guys want. All right. Awesome. Well, Looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, this was great, and we'll see you again uh, sometime soon, hopefully. Right. And as for chat and the, the stream and everybody, thank you guys for hanging out. And uh, obviously, I will be streaming Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and we got a new video coming out Friday on Nahani. You know, check him out and uh, give give Michael a, a subscription, a follow and all that. I think he deserves it. And um, we will see you on the next one. Bye, guys.